I'm Silas Farley, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to Hear the Dance. On this episode, I am thrilled to welcome New York City Ballet principal dancer Jared Engel as guest host. Enjoy. Hello, City Ballet podcast listeners. I hope you're enjoying a nice run on the treadmill, a nice stroll around the neighborhood, a nice stretch before or after dance class. Whatever you do while enjoying these Hear the Dance explorations of City Ballet's repertoire. Choreographed by Jerome Robbins in 1959, The Ballet Moves was not made on our company and only came to our theater in 1984. It's the only work we perform without any musical accompaniment, a ballet in silence. In this first of two episodes, I thought we should immerse ourselves into the world of Jerome Robbins at the time he created this arresting piece. So I knew I wanted to talk to Amanda Vale. Amanda has a history with Jerome Robbins. She wrote a 2007 biography of him titled Somewhere, the screenplay for the Emmy-winning PBS documentary Jerome Robbins, Something to Dance About, and most recently she compiled and edited Jerome Robbins by himself, selections from his letters, journals, drawings, photographs, and an unfinished memoir. She's also the author of two other books, Everybody Was So Young, a biography of the lost generation icons Gerald and Sarah Murphy, and Hotel Florida, Truth, Love, and Death in the Spanish Civil War. Our conversation starts right after she told me that she's currently completing a dual biography of the Schuyler sisters of Hamilton fame, Elizabeth Schuyler Hamilton, wife of Alexander, and her sister, Angelica Schuyler Church. Please enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Amanda Vale, thank you so much for joining me on Hear the Dance. I am delighted to be here, Jara. This is really an honor, and it's going to be fun. Oh, I'm excited for a Schuyler Sisters book after the musical, of course. We oh, have- yeah. Well, we hope yeah. that you know, this is the story behind the headlines or behind the <laughs> Lin-Manuel Miranda's lines or something. <laughs> we hope. I think I'm getting ahead of myself. But when you watch Hamilton, do you see the influence of Jerome Robbins? I get, yes. And, you know, I'll have to tell you something that is so interesting to me about about that show and about Robbins is that when he was trying to be a choreographer, he was thinking of scenarios for things and he was writing these giant epics about Americana because of course that was really in the wind in the 1930s and the early 40s when he was coming up as a dancer and a kind of choreographer. And he would have loved nothing more than to do that show I think I think it's the kind of thing he would have just loved to do it it would be about it was history it was cutting edge theater he would have just loved it and I I really did think that when I was when I was watching the show how much he would have wanted to be in the room where it was happening when I was writing and Judy Kinberg was directing the Jerome Robbins documentary for PBS we kept saying one of the things that we felt so important was to try as much as possible to document Robbins's history as a director and a choreographer for theater because that work is not saved. No one knows. After it's gone, it's gone. And people just don't know that it happened. And it's a little different from a ballet company that cherishes its repertory and keeps it and and tries to keep it in top shape where things are passed down like lovingly from one generation to another. And this doesn't happen in theater. So we sort of wanted to try to do that for him because he really was an extraordinary theater creator in a maximal way. 
How did you get drawn to, to Jerome Robbins and, and want to document his life and write about him? Well, first of all, at the time that I was thinking about doing it, no one had written about him. He was still alive. So that was one of the reasons no one had written about him because he would make damn sure nobody did. Um, he was a quite private person and he wanted control over how his life was presented, his story was presented. And yet it was clear that he was coming to the end of his time on this earth. I didn't even realize at the time because he, he was a great performer in a lot of ways and he would come to the ballet and I would see him on the promenade with his friends talking and laughing and he looked a little frail but he didn't look like he was going to die tomorrow I had no idea how really fragile he was and I think that was something a lot of his his friends said he would put on his show face and come to the ballet and he was on stage and he would go home and just collapse. And anyway, I had, at that point, I had been thinking, I wanted to write a, a book, another biography I had written about these two people, Gerald and Sarah Murphy, who had been um, involved in all the really important and interesting artistic scenes of the 1920s and 30s. Um, they had worked with Diaghilev in Paris. They had been best friends of Hemingway and Fitzgerald and had, had encouraged their work and helped, had introduced Cole Porter to Stravinsky. <laughs> They'd done all kinds of weird things. And I wanted to write about somebody, after I finished writing about them, who had had his or her or their finger in as many cultural pies as they had done. And it suddenly occurred to me that Robbins had done that. Uh, he had been in theater, he had been in ballet, he had affected by the political movements of the 30s and 40s and 50s. He had been friends with so many of the movers and shakers in the art world in the 60s and 70s. So there was all of this. And I thought, oh, he would be such an interesting person to write about. And I had written him a sort of an exploratory note to see if he would let me interview him for a profile, magazine profile that I was going to write about him. And we had a kind of tentative date set. And then he died. <laughs> and I was A, devastated, and B, I felt cheated of this opportunity. And then I thought, well, God damn it, I'm going to write this book anyway. So I did. Amazing. <laughs> I have one Jerome Robbins interaction because I was I made an apprentice in 1998, right before oh, he passed goodness. away. And it was me and two other uh, guys got in because they were doing Union Jack and they needed people. And they said, go to Union Jack rehearsals and go across to the theater and watch the Glass Pieces rehearsals. So I guess I was understudying Glass Pieces. So we sat in the dark house. It was a dress rehearsal. I didn't see him, but I just heard him with the, the God mic, as we say, yelling at people you know touch the floor touch the floor and I, I it was like being in the presence of god so i had a rehearsal with jerome robbins even though i didn't dance and didn't see him well but you heard you had the voice of god was coming at you i, I used to have this dream while i was writing the, i had two Jerry Robbins dreams. The one that was like a really recurring dream was the one where my phone rang and i picked it up and somebody at the other end said amanda it's jerry robbins 
And I just froze like a deer in the headlights. And that's the end of the brief. <laughs> did it stop after publication? Yes, okay. it did. <laughs> so, so he, he must be pleased. I thought, you know, it's one way or another, we're done. <laughs> Because we're exploring the Valley Moves, which happened, it premiered in 1959, I kind of wanted to get a sense of the man in the years leading up to it. And I mean, five years, I mean, 10 years, the most incredible amount of things happened, even just like three years before. So I wondered if you could talk about the man in the 50s. I'll try. And so that's so broad, I know, but. We could be here for an hour just doing that. So I'll try to make it quick. In the mid 50s, so let's say from in the, you know, we're talking about the period 1956 to 1959, kind of mid, mid century, mid decade. Robbins was the associate director of New York City Ballet, the only other person until Wendy Whalen to be given that title. And he was made that after he'd been there for a year, a little bit less than a year, he'd come joined the company in 1949 and very shortly thereafter was made associate director by uh, Balanchine. He was choreographing, he was dancing until around 1953, I think. And at the same time, he was taking time off during the various hiatuses that the company had to do Broadway shows. Like he did Call Me Madam at this point during this period, um, King and I, Peter Pan, uh, Pajama Game, which he co-directed, uh, Bells Are Ringing, and then West Side Story and Gypsy at the very end of the decade, which is, I mean, <laughs> if he never did anything else, that would be enough. You know, when he had come into the company, Balanchine used him very cleverly. Uh, Robbins had a lot of kind of box office appeal that he had brought with him from ballet theater. He did kind of accessible and dramatic ballets like Cage or Pied Piper, which isn't done anymore, or Afternoon of a Fun, or Concert, or Age of Anxiety. Robbins was a real crowd pleaser. And this was a really important thing for City Ballet in those days, because they were really uh, operating on a shoestring. And they, in fact, at one point had to cancel a whole season because they had no money. Sometimes the reviews for Robbins are better than Balanchine, even on some of the that's, international that's, tours. That's true, and as Jacques D'Amboise once said to me, he said, well, you would look out in the audience and there would be nobody in the theater. <laughs> and it was absolutely true. But, oh, you know, he would, the very first ballet, ballets I ever saw, I was a little girl and I was taken to City Center, which still existed. It was like the very last, season or so that they were in city center or not the very last but it was late and there was a triple bill I can't remember what the third thing was but the first thing was Firebird with Frank Monsignor and Maria Tallchief and the last thing was um Fanfare which is this wonderful you know this silly wonderful ballet that uh that Robbins did to Benjamin Britten's Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra, which is just still fun to watch. It's just, it's it's a completely, you know, nonsensical, delightful piece of dumb theater. I just love it. It's just delightful. And I was a little tiny kid and I'm looking up at the stage and thinking, this, I love this. I want to see more of this. And that's what, you know, Robbins brought that 
to them that I want to see more of that kind of thing. So anyway, what you were saying about Robbins and Balanchine, you know, that Robbins revered Balanchine. I mean, really, really revered him. There was no one whose good opinion he would rather have had. There was no one he respected as much as he did Balanchine. And at the same time, of course, there was all of that kind of, I don't know, paternal tension. Here was a father figure in a sense to him, someone who was, he thought of as God. Balanchine revived Prodigal Son for Robbins. And at the very end, if Robbins has crawled in, in this devastating slow motion crawl across the stage, ruined everything taken away from him. And his father comes out of the tent and he crawls over to him. And of course the father, instead of welcoming him as he does in the Bible, stands there like a damn icon. And little Jerry had to crawl up his robe until he's you know clinging to him like a in a fetal position and then finally the father puts his arms around. and Ruthanna Boris who was a dancer in the company at the time said to Balanchine to whom she would address these questions often Mr. Pease is so interesting in the bible it says that he welcomes him with a fatted calf and a feasting and a this and a this but in this ballet he's not doing anything he's, he's just resisting and Balanchine said to him Father is like God, boy must come to him. And that's what Robin felt he had to do with Balanchine. He had to come to him always. And sometimes that was just hard. And he wanted to distinguish himself sometimes. Um, there was also some tension over Tannikil LeClaire, who was became Balanchine's wife in 1951, I believe was the year. And Robinson, she had had a quasi-romantic relationship. Um, Robbins, for all he was, essentially a gay man, never stopped either thinking about occasionally or having relationships with women. He just every now and then just one came along that he was interested in. And in LeClaire's case, it was more than that because she was like a muse to him. He made ballets for her like Fawn, Pied Piper, uh, a bunch of other things. I mean, he, he thought about her all the time when he was making ballets. And as he said, everything I ever made for the company, it was always for Tanny. Um, even if it, she didn't dance in it. The cage was something he wanted her to dance in. Balanchine wouldn't let her. Um, and so they had this kind of rivalry over her. And in 1956, she was stricken with polio and would never, not only not never dance again, but never walk again, which was devastating to everybody, obviously to her, um, to the company, to Balanchine. Um, and to Robbins and Sheen Balanchine at the time that this happened were contemplating being separated. Their marriage had kind of run out of steam and 
he was thinking about other people, which he often did as an artist, you know, it was his heart followed his eyes in a way and his mind. And she started to rekindle a relationship with Robbins. And all of this was thrown into turmoil by this terrible disaster. And Robbins at the time was choreographing and directing Bells Are Ringing, which was in out-of-town tryouts for Broadway. And he wanted to drop everything and go to Denmark, which is where Leclerc was, and was forbidden to come. And of course, he really couldn't because he had a big Broadway production to deal with. So he stayed home, but he wrote her every day, a special delivery. And then when she came back to the States and went to Georgia, to Warm Springs, to rehab, he went down there to see her. He couldn't bear the idea of coming back to City Ballet to work because he said, I, I couldn't do it with her not there. It just was too much. And I think he felt in a way that he just needed he needed to get away from the difficulties that he'd had in his relationship to balancing. He needed to clarify all that for himself and he needed to, um, and he needed to get away from the situation with Leclerc. And as it turned out, John Carlo Minotti, who was starting a festival in Spoleto in Italy in Umbrian Hills, where we have been, Minotti said, would you come and bring a small company and do dances in my lovely little theater? And you'll have, we'll feed you and house you and it'll be wonderful. And, you know, this is the 1950s. This is like the Italian boom is going on. Italy is fabulous. What a great place to go. He gets a little company of dancers. Some of them are from Broadway. Some of them are from City Valley. And he got this company and he took them off and they had a huge hit. They, they had um, New York export Opus Jazz that first season. They did um, Afternoon of a Fawn, a bunch of other things. And... It was so successful that he was asked back for a second season. And in between them, well, he had done West Side Story right before, you know, in between Tanny getting sick and Tanny coming back to America, he did West Side Story. I mean, it was just an amazing thing. That was, he literally went straight from Bells Arena to, to West Side Story opening. And then in the season between 58 and 59, he did Gypsy. So he's been going back and forth from Broadway to ballet, Broadway to ballet, but mostly he's been working a lot in the theater, which is I think also interesting for this ballet that he's been doing so much theater at that time because in 59, they go back and that is when Moves appears. So Ballet USA, it was called, was it presented by the, the State Department in 1958? No, in 1958, it was just this little pickup company. And it is this experimental kind of, gee, let's put on a show in a barn. You know, that's what it was, only it was in Italy. It was, let's put on a show in a barn in Italy. And it was this little bunch of ragtag bunch of kids and, and Jerry. And it was lovely. They had such a good time. Like smash hit. In Italy. Huge, huge. I mean, no one and no one expected this. And Robbins actually wrote to one of his friends, um, uh, Bobby Fisdale, of the duo pianist team of Golden Fisdale. said, what do you know? I have a ballet company all of my own with, you know, overnight. Um, all of a sudden he had this thing that he never even actually thought he was going to have or wanted to have, but he had it. And he 
he kind of loved it. Then he came back here and worked on Gypsy, which was again, huge smash hit. In the meantime, his love life, never simple at the best of times, was incredibly fraught and complex. He'd had a, he'd had the thing with Leclerc on again, off again, off again, maybe on again, totally off the, off the stove. Then he had a long-term relationship for him, which is, you know, like six years, uh, five years with Buzz Miller, a dancer who famously uh, is in the great Steam Heat duet, actually trio in um, Pajama Game, and which you can see on YouTube or really anywhere because he did it in the film as well as on Broadway. And he and Robbins had been together since 1950, really. And uh, that fell apart. He was having a flirtation with Slim Hayward, who is the wife of his Broadway producer, Leland Hayward. And he was also having a thing with a dancer called Tommy Abbott, who was in um, West Side Story and who actually later danced at City Ballet. Oh, and I forgot, uh, he was also having a relationship with Lee Becker, who founded American Dance Machine later. Um, and Lee and he got engaged during the course of West Side Story, but that fell apart, <laughs> not surprisingly. So all of this has been going on in his life, right hand, left hand, whatever. And because of the huge success of Ballets USA in 1958, Leland Hayward, having no, uh, no, no grudges about the wife, I guess. Leland Hayward decides that he is going to try to produce it. He will co-produce it. And the State Department, and this is what is hilarious, the State Department and the American National Theater and Academy, or ANTA, decides they would like to also produce it because the State Department is trying to propagandize all around the world using art and artists and ballet and theater. They send a company to do Porgy and Bess in Russia. They would underwrite artists um, and they decide that they will underwrite a multi-country European and uh, sort of Eastern European tour of Ballets USA. And this is rich because in 1950 and 51, Ed Sullivan had blown the whistle on Jerome Robbins to the FBI and said, this man who was going to appear on my show, but I have canceled him, is a communist. And the FBI and the House Un-American Activities Committee had gone after Robbins and tried to get him not only to testify in their hearings, but also to name names of people who had also been communists that he knew of. And he resisted this for at least two years, three years really, until apparently it appeared that Sullivan was going to out him as a homosexual. And this man, and, and name his partners, one of whom was the movie star Montgomery Clift, who was just then about to be a big, big star and it would have been the end of his career. So Robbins, name names. 
and it is not pretty. He was not proud of himself for doing it, but he did it. And that's in 1953. Six years later, the State Department, which has, I mean, the FBI has been hounding Robbins even after he testified. They would send a guy around to check up on him every couple of years. Hey, we just wanted to find out what you're doing. And, you know, if you had any more information that you would like to give us, can you imagine? So six years later, they decide, oh, we really love you and we want to send you to Europe to be our representative and show everyone what great American culture we have. Can you imagine? None of his letters mention like him talking about the irony of that or being angry about it. Was he angry? Was he like, oh, F you? Or was he just like, hey, if you, somebody's going to pay for it, I, I'll do it. You know, from talking to people who talked to him about this is, he, he never, he wrote so little about that whole Hueck experience. I mean, there was almost nothing. At the end of his life, he was working on a theater piece in which he incorporated, it was meant to be an autobiographical sort of surrealist rendition of his life. And he included material that was drawn from uh, the hearings that he had to participate in, in which he named names. And that was the only written record that and a letter that he must have written to Tanakil Leclerc, which I believe she must have destroyed because it's the only, it doesn't exist, but she references it. At one point she says to him, oh, how terrible that this should have happened to you of all the people that it should never have happened to. You are the one it should never have happened to. And I just wish I had that letter, but I don't. Doesn't he mention it in one one letter to her? He mentions when he's gone, like, like, do people even know what's happening to me or something? Oh, yes. In 1951, he was hiding out in Paris because I, I, there's just no way to recreate the kind of terror. This was a really frightening period in American history. And if you were afraid that you were going to get named, what, what they would do is that the, the committee would subpoena you. But they had a kind of a season for doing it. And if they didn't do it by a certain date, then you were pretty much off the hook until next year when they decided they were going to, you know, the season would, hunting season would start up again and they would come after you. So Robbins had fled to Europe for the entire summer of 1951. And he was in Israel. He did some work over there with you know, sort of helping to found Batsheva, um, doing some other work. He went, was touring here and there. He and Buzz Miller got together. They were in, they went to Brittany. They drove all over Northern France. And then he ended up in Paris. He was afraid to come home because he knew he would get subpoenaed. On the other hand, Balanchine had created, was creating a ballet for him based on the Till Eulenspiegel legend, only it was called Till Eulenspiegel because it was Dutch and not German. And it was an incredibly fast paced, sort of picaresque, crazy piece. And they were waiting for him to come back and finish that. And Tanny 
got furious with him for not being there. What's, what's the matter with you? Why are you still in Paris? George needs you here. You need to be here. What's the matter with you? And he kept writing her saying, I can't, I can't come back. And, um, you know, nobody knows what's happening to me. Hmm. Well, they didn't because he didn't tell them. <laughs> but he just didn't tell them because he was that kind of a guy. He was very secretive, very private, like I said. The one thing that I have ever seen that he wrote about his ordeal at the hands of HUAC, which you can deduce if you go through their records, um, all the, the freedom of information stuff that you know one has gathered from the FBI records, which have a lot of blacked out testimony, but they also have a lot of non-blacked out testimony. You can trace exactly what they said to him and how they worked on this, you know, really he was just 30 and he's terrified that his life is going to be just ruined by this terrible thing that's happening. And he wrote a memorandum detailing the interview that he had with this, these guys at the FBI and he buried it in a file and no one ever saw it until I was doing this autobiography in letters and papers and whatnot three years ago. And I was looking for actually just one of the scripts from his autobiographical theater piece, the Papa piece, because I wanted to use the trial scene to stand for his interrogation by HUAC. And he wrote, of course, multiple versions of it, as you know, from having ever talked to any dancers who worked with him, he had version A, B, C, and D, and, you know, D1, D2, and D3 of anything that he ever choreographed. And this was the same way with his script. He had the same number of versions of it. And I had one version of this trial scene, but I knew there was, I can remember it. I'd seen another that was better. And I was looking for it in the library and I was going to a file and, you know, I and everyone else who's ever written about or researched him must have been through those files also the same way. And none of us ever found this. But as I'm going through it, I suddenly look and there's this little kind of wad of not white Xerox paper, which is what the rest of the scripts were in, but this kind of old grainy beige fool's cap paper that people used to type stuff on if they just were doing it for drafts or something. And I thought, huh, I wonder what this is. And I pulled it out and it was a memorandum that he wrote in 1951 to his file saying, everything that had happened to him, talking to the lawyer, what the lawyer had said, what uh, Ed Sullivan had said, what the FBI guy had said, all of it was right there. I could not believe it. It was like a message in a bottle. It was just, I never seen this. So there you go. That was the only thing he, and he put it away. He put it in a file. He never looked at it again until presumably he looked at it when he was writing the Papa piece, which is why it got in with those scripts, but cheapers. Amazing. So from being, you know, subpoenaed and, and, and naming names, six years later, he is being presented in part by the State Department as the, you know, arbiter of American taste and democracy. And, you know, he's got, this is what is also fascinating, for the second season of Ballet's USA, where he's being sponsored by the State Department, he is doing a big marquee name ballet 
by him with a score by Mr. Americana himself, Aaron Copeland, who, by the way, was also investigated by Hewitt. And when they tried to interview him before making him testify, he was apparently so sad and pathetic that they just realized they couldn't they couldn't even put him into the public forum that way because he would look so sad and miserable and they would have just looked like they were victimizing him so they never called him but but copeland himself had been investigated so the two of them these two like ex commie pinko art guys are gonna be doing this state department sponsored ballet and the only thing the problem was that after robbins had described, oh, I think here's a ballet. I think you could, I'd like you to do this sort of a ballet. Maybe you could do, I think a bit of waltz time and this kind of a waltz and that kind of a waltz. Sometimes he would just inundate you with having overthought something. And he had overthought this idea of what this ballet should be like musically to Copeland at the end of this long description of, well, you could try this, you could try that. He says, but you know, if you don't like these ideas, just throw them out, feel free. He says, well, yeah, <laughs> it's Aaron Copeland. Yes, he should feel free. But, but Copeland starts trying to write this thing and he was having difficulty. So finally he comes in and he plays some of it for Robbins and Robbins says, oh, it's beautiful. I love it, this is great. And he marks down the counts for some of the, movements but he can't remember the music which is very hard because it's kind of like a lot of dissonance and weird you know copelandish things going on in it so robbins has to start rehearsing so he takes his dancers into the studio and he just says well i've got the counts i'll start doing well, working on it with the counts and i think what happened one of his dancers aaron martin said later you know that he he just fell in love with the idea of doing it and, without any music and he had been really I think fascinated with this idea of dance to silence for a really really long time he began his career as a modern dancer and in the modern dance world the idea of doing things without any music was you know it was practically old-fashioned by 1959 I mean Laban had done it Vigman had done it Doris Humphrey did it there's a ballet she, or a dance she did called water study um back in like the late 20s. Martha Graham in Primitive Mysteries, part of that doesn't have any music. Um, there's another ballet she did called Trend that doesn't have any music in it. Uh, Cunningham did it. I mean, later everybody does it. They're all picking it up. And Judson Church is a big thing to do that. Lucinda Childs does stuff with no music. But, but right now in the ballet world, nobody's doing it. Nobody has done it. So Robbins thinks, this is cool. I like this. So you know, he's, he's discovering that it makes the dancers really attentive to each other, which he really liked. You know, he would he'd always say, who are you dancing to? You know, when he's, he meant, who are you? Who is the other person you're dancing with? It's like, who are you speaking to? He would think of dance as being speaking to. So who are you dancing to? At some point, he wrote something about how the silence how it puts the dancer's body under a magnifying glass and then nothing is holding the dance or the emotion except the the movement and the relationships that the people have to each other that's he was fascinated by that so just before they go to spoleto to actually put the dance together copeland delivers a sketch of the music in the not even the whole thing 
And he sits down at the piano and he plays it. And Robbins hears it and it's like, that's not what I've been choreographing. I've been choreographing something completely different. <laughs> you know, it's like the whole, it's a completely, the counts are the same, but it's a completely different tone, mood, everything. So he decided, well, we don't have time to mesh these two things. And anyway, Aaron isn't finished with the score. So he kind of auditioned the how much of moves he'd done already for the dance panel of ANTA and the State Department people. And they hated it. They were furious. You can't take this. No one is going to stand for it. They're going to throw tomatoes at you. This is going to be a disgrace. The United States is going to be disgraced. You can't do this. Just the wrong thing to say to Robbins. He's like, oh, yeah? Let's just see about that. And he won't budge. You know, they, they tried to get him to do interplay instead. And he said, no, 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 I'm doing opus jazz and interplay looks too much like opus jazz. I'm not going to do those two things. Are you crazy? No, I'm not going to. So he goes over to Spoleto with this, you know, completely soundless, well, not completely soundless, but musicless ballet. And it's a huge hit. And he's so thrilled because, you know, he's so angry at the State Department and then everybody involved, he's calling them fascists. And you know, he just, he's so angry. And this is, to him, this is such incredibly, such great vindication. He's thrilled to be vindicated in this way. So it was an incredible thing for him. It, it was such a hit that as a result, Ed Sullivan, the man who outed him to the FBI in the first place has started all the horribleness. Ed Sullivan asks Valley's USA to be on his show, not once, but twice in 59 and 60. And, you know, this is, this is incredible. They don't do moves, by the way, because that's, you know, even that is a little too out there for Ed, but. (laughs) The way he introduces them, I just, I, I think I burst out laughing because he said, they conquered the world and did so much good for America. And I was like- It's all American kids dancing. How can you say that with a straight yep. face after you tried to ruin this man's life? Oh, I just want to, I hate Ella Sullivan so much when I see that. I want to just claw okay. his eyes out. It makes me He's crazy. a great villain in, in, the, in your biography. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, I just can't bear that kind of sanctimonious, um, patronizing sanctimonious villainy. I just can't bear it. And there it is. It's right there. But it was interesting that the dance panel that was making the decision about we don't want moves, how there was the language that sort of has a prejudice where it's like, well, certain things would be good for, you know, Paris or or London, but then these other countries. It was really interesting how they... Also, all the places that are kind of like battleground states or, you know... Yeah, I thought that was really wild. Yeah. And they also, I think they think it's just too edgy and dangerous for them. I don't know. I, I mean, I really do not have any idea what they were thinking. Of. Oh, and the great joke of it all is that later, Copeland finishes the music. It's very beautiful. You can listen to it because it is published and he gives it a title. And the title is Dance Panels. <laughs> Oh, you, I did not even put that together. I've been listening yep. to it. That's it. <laughs> oh, that's funny. It's a little dig. It's just a little dig. 
Yeah. It was such a hit that even the places where Moves was not uh, scheduled, I think it was like Dubrovnik or something, that was very yeah. upset. They were upset that they weren't getting this. Modern. Oh, yeah. And in Israel, they were also, that was another place. And he, they were furious. What happened? We wanted the, the ballet that doesn't have any music. But oh, I no. love it. I just love it. And then, you know, they had they had all these disasters, like they lost all their scenery and their costumes in a plane crash. And you know, the State Department made them fly on non-pressurized jet, uh, not jets, on pressurized prop planes across the Atlantic and all kinds of other stuff, but they they all persevered, these people. They were a really great bunch of troopers, all of them. Do you get the sense that this was a very happy time in his life as he's conquering Europe? And, and oh, he loved it. Yes, it was, it was. He really, in the end, running a company, I think the, the responsibility and having so many people to please, which is what running anything is about, you know, that kind of wore on him. But when they were over there in Spoleto, which is a place he loved, 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 the feeling that he had there, they all had there, of uh, being in a place where life and art and work were all in balance. And it wasn't like you work, 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 and then you have the leisure. It was like, oh, well, you know, you go in the studio and you do this, and, you do this, and then you take a nice lunch break. And then, then you come back and you work. And then you have, you know, it was very, well, you know what it's like. You've been there. Well, yeah, it's different. You're like, we're living life wrong. <laughs> Yeah. Why aren't we living like this? Yes. <laughs> different. And it's beautiful. Everywhere you go, there's something beautiful to look at. And this is a guy, too, for whom beautiful thing. He really had a very sensitive eye. And, you know, if, if he looked at beautiful things, it made him happier. Yeah. Um, you have only to look at those, those diaries from the 70s with all those little watercolor sketches of all the things that he saw when he's in Italy in the summertime. Uh, to realize that this place nourished him in a way um, and made him feel at harmony with himself in a way that many, many places just didn't do. I want to do a, a, a Jerome Robbins Italy project and just go everywhere that he t talks about, writes about all the paintings. I think that would be fascinating because it, I comes, think a great idea. it comes up so often and also the references, visual references, thematic references in his his pieces must be there as well. Oh, sure. They're yeah. all these little things. Well, you know, the thing is, until I had seen Tuscany and Umbria, really more than Tuscany, Umbria in the summer, in the high summer, I had no idea about summer and four seasons, but you see that and then you think, oh, I, I get this now. You know how it's supposed to be. You can feel it on your skin, you know? And I just think, if I were dancing it, it would be so valuable to have just get the feel of it. Because that's a very Robinsy thing, this, this, you know, to, to have that feeling. He was not an abstractionist. You know, the things, the context was always important to him. Things always had a context, even if they supposedly didn't. When you watch his, his ballets, do you just see his biography coming through? Or it, was it not always so literal? <laughs> You know, it's a it's a thing. You know, you, it's kind of reductive to say, "Oh, here, this is this, and this is that." You know, "Oh, I see that this is about Tanny," and and you know, you can look at, for instance, some of the earlier ballets. You can see relationships that he had with other people, maybe mirroring in them. But I think what you do see is there are concerns he had 
themes that ran through his life, but also run through his work. And in the 50s, early 60s, it was very popular for critics to talk about the alienation in Robbins's work. They all said, oh, everyone is so alienated. Um, you know, it's like the gang kids in West Side Story, they're alienated. It's like, they're all singing Officer Krupke to him. And it's like critics are the chorus of Officer Krupke. But, <laughs> but in, in now everybody talks about how his work creates a community. When he made moves, he subtitled it, A Ballet in Silence About Relationships. And I'm not, do you all use that about relationships anymore? I think it just says a ballet in silence. I, I don't, yeah. I, I think mean, relationships has gone by the board. And yeah. that's what it is. He's not, it's not really always community because sometimes he's really interested in the person who's not in the community. Hmm. The people who are cast out of the community. What he's really interested in is the relationship, the relationship of this person to that person, the relationship of this person to the group, the relationship of the group to that person. He's really interested in that. And that in his own life was a thing. He was so conscious. If you read his kind of metafiction from the 1940s when he was touring with ballet theater and he would write these sort of novels that were clearly about himself. They were, they were short stories, prose fiction pieces in which there was an unnamed narrator, but it was him, it was clearly him. And that person is so often, he's an observer, he's alone. He looks out a train window at the landscape flying by. He wonders what it will be like to live there to be that person that he sees. He is in a hotel and he looks at people in the lobby and he wonders who they are. There's a lot of that feeling of aloneness. And that's, of course, that's in moves. There's, you can see it right there. There's that move where there's the three couples and then the one person keeps being kind of the odd person out. There's often somebody who's not in the group and it's not always a sad thing, but, He's interested in that. The one thing that I, what, what, as you were saying, talking about like alienation, but the idea of like West Side Story and opus jazz and moves being related and being related to like a youth movement or like beatniks. There's one letter where he's talking about beatniks and do you know about them? Aren't they kind of frightening? I don't, I don't really know much about what he's referring to. What does that mean? The beatnik, well like... Well, were they these gangs? Oh my God, it makes me feel so old. Um, I know the phrase, but I don't know exactly what. Well, you know, in the beats, think of it as being like when, I don't know, 10 years later, people are talking about hippies. Um, they're just talking about the beat poets and the people around them were also extremely interested in the sort of alienation of people from society, from conformist society, and they were celebrating non-conformism, um, you know, listening to essentially your own beat, um, being cool, man. Anyway, that's what that was. Mm -hmm. And of course, in a very conformist age, like the 50s, this is dangerous. You're not being a part of the lockstep group. You are you're trying to dance to your own music. You are not down with the program. They don't like that. So that's kind of what that was. And he had a great sense that people 
after World War II and after the, the devastation of World War II and the depression, of course, before that, that the people that came out of that were deracinated, that they were alienated, and then, you know, like the West Side Story kids. And when he's, he's actually talking at once to Bernstein about trying to make a piece using what he called beatniks um, or the beats, he, he says there are West Side Story kids a generation older. Well, of course they aren't because the West Side Story kids are the same age if you count that as being in 1957. But of course, West Side Story really was born and conceived 10 years previous even to that. So, you know, what he's seeing is successive generations of people who are, who don't feel integrated into society, I think. He writes in that letter, he says, do you know any, any of these beat people? Yeah. They're scary. And what's most frightening is they, that it isn't an act or an adopted attitude and facade to deal with life, but a real living thing. I think yeah. it's fascinating that he's like scared of it, but at the same time. Fascinated. He, yeah, fascinated. I wanted to ask you, um, what is it like for you? And the thing that strikes me, and so I think struck Robbins about moves is that when you have no music, you have to pay attention. The dancers have to pay attention, but the audience has to pay attention too. And the audience has paid so much attention to the choreography. So what is it like to dance that, knowing that you are being really looked at? Nobody is, nobody is leaning on any music. They're not leaning on costumes. They're just watching you. What is that uh, like? I found it thrilling. It, it felt like all of a sudden the, like, like, the world existed in a vacuum and and especially when i did the potida it was like i've said it before but it was like being in the center of the world like i am the center of the universe and i'm i don't know if it's because i'm watching the woman do her strange cobra thing on the floor and i'm just like watching her and then i go up to her and i sort of manipulate her it's like i'm i don't know i don't want to say like god but i'm like i'm in charge and it's all just centered on me somehow. Did that that moment remind you at all of anything in Agon? Um, I guess not at the time it didn't, but I, when yeah. in reading your things and other things, the the and also I forget that it was choreographed two years after Agon, and I'm like, right. oh, yeah, there is a, a manipulation and a. And Roman has such a weird way of absorbing these things, and then they leach out, you know. Yeah kind of unconsciously. One thing I just wanted to kind of say, and I was thinking about this actually, um, and, and a lot of the, the Ballets USA rep in particular, because it was created on a company quite different from the dancers at City Ballet. And you know, from the letters that Robbins exchanged with Lincoln Kersey among others, that this was sometimes a point of tension for them. But Moose didn't come into the City Ballet Rep until 84, which is after Balanchine had died. And Joffrey had done it before. And I'm trying to think if anyone, I think Ailey had done it, maybe. I kind of think that Mr. B and Lincoln must have thought it was too downtown or not classical. Or, you know, they did that, especially Lincoln would have done that thing where it's just like, I'm sorry, it's not good enough for us. And when it premiered it, City Ballet, Anna Kisselgoff said, and I actually wrote this down, there was a time when moves was peopled with characters 
working out their problems. Their relationships were intense. They acted like fugitives from the lonely crowds of Anna Sokolov's modern dance pieces. For all the fact that the girls wore toe shoes, moves had the feel of modern dance where body language played a part where spatial composition was tied to quality of moving. This is a quality that the city ballet men occasionally convey. This is 1984, mind you, so before anyone is there. The women trained to dance it in a neutral manner without emotional coloration gives us a series of steps, end quote. And I'm thinking, you know, Jerry was there when this happened. It's not like he didn't participate in how it was how the dance was done. So I'm thinking it wasn't just the way the company danced, but it's also the way maybe Robbins was trying to make them do it as if he was trying to be more Balanchini than Mr. B, which he would occasionally try to do, as you know. I'm so looking forward to seeing this ballet again. It's been a long time. I haven't seen it in ages. I, you know what? I don't know when it last came around, but I'm, I've been enjoying re-watching. Re I watched some rehearsals and it's been fun to to see it again because it's there's so much in it that I I had forgotten or maybe didn't even notice when I was actually doing the the ballet myself. Oh, you always see something new in things. I find. I mean, it, it just kills me. You'll look at something and think, oh, here comes this great moment that I'm, and then you suddenly see something else on the way to the great moment, and you think, my oh, God, was that there all the time? And it was. You're like, that's the great moment. I was wrong after <laughs> all along. <laughs> But it's just, it's extraordinary anyway. If it's a good piece, there's always something new in it. Well, I just want to say, since I said that Ed Sullivan is the, you know, the great villain in your biography, <laughs> in, in your biography of Robin's life, um, the great heroine that I keep on thinking about is that um, sort of that secretary at the School of American Ballet who dismissed Jerome Robbins. <laughs> I, I love her. Like, Isn't it the best thing that ever happened? It was probably devastating at the time. Oh, so, it was clearly devastating and it was so the right thing because it would have okay. just been the wrong place for him to be he would have been just choked and angry and twisted and this was in the before years before he had seen Danilova in yeah. uh, what was it gay yeah. Parisienne yeah. Yeah. and he decided that yeah. her waltzes were so magnificent, he wanted to be a ballet dancer. So he went to the School of American Ballet and asked the secretary for if they for a scholarship that he needed one. And she just said, we don't do scholarships and he left. Right. And you know, you think about it actually, it's not like there were a lot of guys lining up to come and even dance oh. at all. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But clearly something about him rubbed her the wrong way. And I just well, it's such a great moment. Yes, you're right that it was that person performed a great service to dance in America. The thing that I love about Robbins is that he was fascinated by this circle. Every, there are circles and so many things. And his works, the best of it, it has a sense of not circularity so much as just going and then returning to something that you you feel that you've been on a journey in any of his really big, wonderful works. You feel that you've been somewhere and you've come back and you know something more than what you left with. And that's, you know, I think that's, that's a, he would like that. Good. You won't be getting a phone call in your dream tonight. <laughs> <laughs> it's Jerry Robbins. <laughs> oh my God. Well, you never know. I may, I may have that dream again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
stay tuned. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This was really such a pleasure. Oh, fun. I thank love you. talking to you. Okay, Jared. Well, let's see one another again soon. And thank you, listeners, for joining us. On the next episode of Hear the Dance, we'll continue our exploration of moves. We'll hear what it's like to learn, teach, and perform this ballet. See you then.